Welcome to Free the Mind, Free the People, a podcast where we come together to empower each other through knowledge and discuss the issues that shape our everyday lives. All opinions and information shared in this podcast are held by the hosts alone and do not represent the stances of the University of Central Florida and the Department of Sociology. Hi everyone, my name is Marina and I am one of the hosts for the Free the Mind, Free the People podcast. Hi everyone, I'm Hallie and I'm the other host for Free the Mind, Free the People and welcome back to our newest episode. Yes, so today we actually have a new guest. Uh, Her name is Annie Jones and she is one of our senior researchers and also a co-writer with us um, for the podcast. So uh, Annie, if you'd like to introduce yourself and give us a little bit of background about who you are and uh, your education. Hello, ladies. Thank you for having me on today. Hi, everyone. I'm Annie Jones. I am a third-year PhD student here at UCF in the sociology department. Um, I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in sociology. I teach our sex and gender class here at UCF, and I am currently working on my dissertation research looking at the intersections of race, sexuality, and gender through the current book bans that have been going on. So again, thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. We're excited to have you on. Yes, we're so happy to have you here. And um, so just as a bit of an introduction for everyone listening um, in this episode, uh, we really want to discuss more about what redirect your outrage means. We didn't really get into that in the first episode. But yes, we we really want to discuss what this means, why we named chapter two redirect your outrage. Um, But especially throughout this chapter, we really hope to use two main uh, paradigms, sociological imagination and intersectionality, to understand these topics that we will discuss, social issues, as connected rather than separate, which is how we usually understand and are presented these issues. Mm -hmm. And a little peek forward, episode three will kind of be a mini-series discussing three main organizations that are affecting social issues that are going on right now. Um, So Marina will do a deep dive into the Christian right, which is affecting Roe v. Wade and anti-CRT bills. I'll do a deep dive of the NRA and mass shootings and gun control. And Annie will do a deep dive into the Koch brothers and their influence on politics. And through these episodes, we will find that there are very sneaky connections between all three that you probably wouldn't realize. Mm -hmm. And so when one social issue is affecting you, just know it's not just from one organization or one being. It's an interconnection of organizations in power that are working together to affect our daily lives. So that's what we'll be going into in a future episode. Exactly. And yes, like Hallie said, this is not usually how we think about social issues. Uh, We see them on the media separately and sometimes certain uh, themes are, certain social issues are the popular ones and then it just, fades away and then there's another one so that's not how we usually think about these things and in order to redirect your outrage which is what we'll I'm about to define (laughs) um in order to do that we need to understand the social structure uh so first why did we name this chapter redirect your outrage and first this is something that I actually told someone once (laughs) um (laughs) But the meaning of this is we really want people to redirect uh, their outrage 
outrage that we may feel at social issues and people around us to back to the structures that cause these issues. So we want to redirect our focus and our outrage at those structures that cause these issues. Uh, so in this chapter, we really hope to give you those tools to using sociology. So the sociological imagination and intersectionality, both of those are uh, paradigms that we use in sociology to address these issues and to better understand society. So we hope that these tools will help you and all of us redirect our outrage at the actual social structure that is causing them. So again, uh, to begin the conversation, we want to define one of those tools and we talked about it a little bit in episode one, uh, which is the sociological imagination. And this is one of the first things that we learn in sociology uh, as sociology students. And what it means is it's seeing personal issues as connected to a larger social structure. So we mentioned in the first episode that uh, it's not about you as an individual, really. Like It's not about you carrying the entirety of world history on your shoulders as an individual. That is not what we do in sociology. Uh, we, we are looking at social systems. And so it's interesting because one of the things that we've discussed before uh, when it comes to what we call the war on education is the Stop Woke Act. And this is a law that took effect in July 1st and here in Florida. <clears throat> and basically one of the, this idea, this mindset that the individual is the, per the person that's responsible for social issues and structural issues is actually in this bill and in the way that it's written. So just one of the quotes from this bill says, an individual by virtue of his or her race, color, sex, or national origin bears, bears personal responsibility for and must feel guilt, anguish, or other forms of psychological distress because of actions in which the individual played no part, commit, committed in the past by other members of the same race, color, sex, or nat national origin. So what is being said here in this bill is that people in the classroom cannot be made to feel like they are personally responsible for or feel or, or be made to feel like bad for these systemic issues as an individual. But again, that is not what sociology does and that is not what we're here to do. But it's we wanted to bring this up because it is something that's already in the social society's mindset, if that makes sense. Yeah, and going off the idea of the sociological imagination and it not being about the individual is that like a lot of our anger goes to those on the opposite side of the political spectrum. And um, there's a saying that it's not about left and right, it's about up and down. And so in that case, like it's not about your anger should not be towards the people that are on the opposite side of the political spectrum, who it should actually be towards the people above us, which is like an authoritarian structure, an oppressive structure, like the political elite, the people in power, because ultimately they're the ones that are affecting the issues going on in your life, not the person, not your neighbor that has like voted for someone on the other, a different president for you. Like that's not where your anger should be going to. It should be going to the structure. It's about the power. And this kind of happened, this played out in a class that I had where um, we were talking about the relief checks over COVID that Joe Biden was giving out. 
and a classmate raised their hand and they were like, I think it's wrong that they're sending out relief checks because I have two jobs and I'm not making as much money as those people are getting and they don't have any jobs and I like they should not be getting that money if they don't work. And I, I raised my hand very slightly and slowly. <laughs> and I was like, I told her, I was like, I think you're right to be frustrated. However, like you should be angry that you are working two jobs that are not paying you enough not the fact that there are relief going to people in need. And I think that anger is correct to have, but I feel like you're you're giving it to the wrong systems. You're getting mad at those trying to help people rather than getting mad at the fact that you are not being paid a livable wage and the fact that you have to be working two jobs to survive right now. And that's not what's, that's, that is something to be angry about. And I think that was kind of surprising to them because they didn't, they didn't expect someone who disagreed with them politically to also recognize that their anger was valid in a sense and also mm -hmm. let them know that while that anger is true it might not be going to the right structures and it kind of made them like question they're like whoa this person who disagrees with me is kind of being nice to me but also is telling me i'm wrong at the same time and it was kind of like confusing for them so right. that's the way that you know the sociological imagination can reframe your idea of when social issues are going on this is totally why I love teaching sociology. There's like mm -hmm. beauty or hope or optimism, whatever you want to call it, in in the, in some of these tools, specifically the sociological imagination. Some of what we bet a lot of what we've been talking about actually has been really focused on these kind of like partisan political issues, right? Um, and the partisan system is set up to where we're almost like sports rivals, right? <laughs> we're made to be angry at each other. Um, but the sociological imagination allows us to take this almost like humanistic view of the world by, by peeling some of those layers back. And what I mean by that is that we can really see these like shared human impacts of structures. Um, and so what we're looking at right here is like an emotional impact, right? Our outrage. Um, and I think the sociological imagination very beautifully can bring us together as we feel that outrage, right? And instead mm -hmm. of fighting against each other, using that to shift it back to the structures. Um, the opposite, to, in my mind, is this hegemonic perspective, which pits us against right. each other, really. So in the end, I think what we're speaking to, right, is that it's about power, not politics, right? And we use sociology to address these larger structures that go beyond the things that pit us against each other. Um, this is how we come together, right? This is the liberatory potential of sociology. This is the hope and optimism. And and the sociological imagination is a tool to make that happen and so to me this is although it were full of anger right and like things suck <laughs> a lot out there in the world mm -hmm. um there's some hope right there's some beauty in being able to not only use these tools but maybe share them and make something out of it yes mm -hmm. and i think that also opens up space for just reflection like reflecting so why is it that we feel that outrage uh, and so again, our our main purpose is so using the sociological imagination. Hopefully, we can learn how to redirect our outrage because we are understanding. Oh, hold on! This is bigger than that. This is bigger than that one person that I'm disagreeing with, or that one person that that makes me feel uncomfortable or angry for some reason. Critical race theory and anti-racism. Why are we angry at anti 
racism and people that oppose these systems if we do say we disagree with racism um why are we angry at them rather than the system itself so that right. those are things that we should we we really can sit with when we are trying to redirect our outrage and use these tools in sociology and one quick thing i want to add to my point before and what you're saying mm -hmm. is that like power is upheld when we ignore the fact that like there is a power structure involved. If we keep on getting mad at each other, that's what the power structures want us to do. That's what people in power right. want us to do because it doesn't make us look up and realize that there is an oppressive power system going on. If we keep on ignoring like those above us and we keep on arguing with each other, that is what the powerful want us to do. So that's why we must stop doing that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Marina, you said something really interesting that reminded me a couple years ago, Eduardo Bonilla Silva challenged uh, race scholars in sociology to think of emotions as logical, as opposed to these like illogical biological responses. They're actually like logical, right? In the context and we have to do the work to understand the logic behind those emotions. And we see this time and time again. I think we can literally look at the rise of Trump, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and like the kind of white rage we saw as a society over the past you know how many I'm not even going to count the years because it will be depressing um, <laughs> but we saw a lot of rage coming out of like white rural or even white middle class America right rage that is likely uh, connected to our economic system right but then is then redirected to political opponents um, I think of rural coal miners in West Virginia, for example, who are mad at somebody like Joe Biden for closing their mind, which that means because their job, they lost their job, right? Um, but what's missing in that, that rage is an understanding or an inclusion acknowledgement of uh, global warming, right? Climate change right. and how we have to address that and the federal government's role. Um, and maybe it's slow moving to address that. Um, other things I think of is like, there's an amazing This American Life podcast about a small town in Alaska, which is where I'm from. So I, I, that's why I love listening to this. Mm -hmm. um, that was up in arms over the border wall crisis. So literally these people in a town that are as far away from the border as you could possibly get probably <laughs> yeah. um, are really... <laughs> are divided right and fighting each other in the community over an issue that is totally socially constructed and opposed upon them right to then mm -hmm. set them up to be mad at each other and again as a sociologist I start to question like well there are insecurities in this community right if people are fighting against each other and we have this level of emotion um mm -hmm. what power structures are obscuring right the true roots of these insecurities because they're we're, how they're coming out in this immigration debate doesn't make any sense but <laughs> I think as sociologists we can again use these tools to peel back the layers and see what's really going on right and I like that you brought up environmental racism because that's something that I study as one of my like major research zones. And one thing that we talk about in the idea of like using tech or academia to solve environmental racism is that we'll go into communities like coal mining communities and we'll be like, oh, this is bad for the environment. This is horrible. And then we'll have the idea to shut it down and then we leave. And then it creates this vacuum of like what you just left there was people who don't have jobs, who don't know how to cope with what's going on and they'll be able to lash their anger to whatever they see next. So that could be immigration, that could be people of color, it could be whatever they, they could be at the president, like when there's a larger social structure that's going on and 
that is like the like there are usually power structures, academia, politics that come in and make decisions for these people and don't even think about the effect it will have on them. Mm-hmm. So it, there can be a nuance in the fact that, yeah, coal mining is bad for the environment, but also shutting it down will also be bad for the people who live there and like the resulting culture that will exist. Yes. And I think you both are talking about that individualistic versus structural approach at understanding these social issues and addressing these social issues like Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what we are here to discuss and what um what applying the sociological imagination and later uh, we'll talk about intersectionality but that is the main purpose of shifting this mindset because the solutions and the the understanding of social issues that we see in our society right now is an individualistic way of thinking for example like in uh, environmental racism they there's this idea of what you can do as an individual uh to like green be green and be sustainable Mm -hmm. and all of those things but there is virtually no real like understanding on how to approach how to address these issues at a structural level and mm-hmm. we discuss huge corporations that are that have the biggest effect on the planet. And um, that's not what's being addressed typically when we talk about these mm-hmm. things. It's more about how you can no longer use plastic straws and things like that, mm-hmm. which is not wrong. Right. Again, it's not wrong. It's just mm-hmm. it begs the question, are we really addressing these things at the root? Are we really focusing our attention at the right thing. Um, And so I I wanted to bring up the uh, COVID. And so uh, one of the things with COVID was also that individualistic idea of how society works, like the individualistic mindset. And it's about how if, if you want to wear a mask, you can, but if you don't, you don't have to, even though a pandemic, a virus that is contagious is inherently collective. There's no way to go around it. So mm-hmm. uh, one of the things with individualism, uh, which is that individual, individual segments that we keep talking about, um, one, the first thing that it does, it's, it separates us because it makes us believe, oh, we're only responsible for ourselves. And that applies to every single person around us. We are only supposed to care for ourselves and whatever we do won't impact others. We are each responsible for our own lives. Um, So there's that. So it it makes us detached from each other. Uh, And secondly, when we believe that our actions are the only, it only affects us, not the broader community, then it becomes more difficult to redirect your outrage at these powerful people and structures above you that are actually um, affecting you. So that's one of the things that I was thinking about, like what if we continue to think about these social issues in an individualistic way, it'll actually make it more difficult to hold those structures accountable and to um, speak to power when it comes to these uh, social issues. Mm -hmm. What I hear you doing right there, Marina, is talking about how neoliberalism hides power structures, right? That is from my research, one of the Mm -hmm. things that is consistent across, you know, time and space at this point um, is this 
function of neoliberalism to obscure right to hide to mm-hmm. mask what's going on behind the curtain Mm-hmm. Exactly. And just to define neoliberalism really quickly for those who don't know, it comes from this classic economic liberalism, the idea of a free market and individual power in the market. And it has now shifted into this new neoliberalism is the idea of deregulation, freedom, individualism. And the idea that we all have power in the system. But the thing about neoliberalism is it's actually illiberal. It's not it doesn't actually help those in need. It kind of just gives you the idea that it does. And so like COVID was the perfect opportunity for people on all sides of the political spectrum to come together and be like, we are all equally affected or somewhat equally affected by this contagious virus. And this is where the split of the left and the right really showed where instead of us coming together and be like, we need to find ways to solve this issue, we ended up looking to the power structures of random Republicans saying don't get vaccinated. And then there was this huge split of now we're making fun of people who died of COVID. It's like it showed like this <laughs> ultimate break in the system of when we were supposed to come together because we were all suffering, we ended up splitting further and further apart. And so that's how like this, when we don't redirect our outrage, it shows the split when we're supposed to be really like humanistic. We care about people. We're all humans. We're supposed to care about each other. And what it does is it creates, we're just enemies at this point. And we're just making fun of deaths and making fun of people for protecting themselves. And it's it that's not how we should be going about issues, social issues. Um, and in that frame, we can get into the idea of like intersectionality and the matrix of domination. And we, um, kind of define we in, we define intersectionality and in the matrix of domination last week and we wanted to discuss how like intersectionality is not this like pop sociology definition that you hear a lot of people talk about like on twitter or out in out in the world where it's like oh we all have different like individual ideas and we think different things and like that's okay like that's not really what intersectionality is Um, And how I like to define it, or this idea that I use was created by Crenshaw, and it's the idea of the basement. And so the basement is kind of a metaphor to define intersectionality in a way that takes it away from the individual's point of view and takes it to a wider structural view of intersectionality. So in your head, imagine a basement with an opening on top. And in the basement, there are stacks of people on each other's shoulders going up to the top of this basement. And so in this metaphor, the people at the top are the most privileged. So like straight, white, rich men are at the top. And at the very bottom are the um, people who have multiple oppressed identities. So like black women, black trans women, um, people lower on the social class, like those are the people at the very bottom. And so the people at the top for the most privileged are able to just kind of climb out of the hole. And then they can kind of like kind of pick up the people right below them. But no matter what, no one will be able to reach the multiply marginalized people. They'll always be stuck at the bottom. And so what this does is it means when we are creating social movements and we're creating regulations or laws or movements that are supposed to help people, what the idea is you have to create it to help the most marginalized people. So you're going to be helping people at the very bottom. And that means if the people at the bottom of the basement can get out, the people at the top can too. So in that case, if you don't think about it that way, the people at the bottom will always stay there. So we have to memorize, remember as we're moving forward, intersectionality is the idea of like 
this like multiply marginalized and there are like ways as a structure but because we don't want to really always look at it at, as an individual there's a structural way to help those who are multiply marginalized and at the bottom and so that is how i kind of want to look at intersectionality and the matrix of domination which is the overlap of these power structures yes and then one of the things when it comes to intersectionality is as hallie was talking about with the pop sociology and <laughs> just really the mainstream it just becomes a bit diluted from its original intent and another thing that we also mentioned one term that we mentioned in the first episode was the matrix of domination and we're using those both together intersectionality and the matrix of domination and the matrix of domination is that system those overlapping systems of oppression that we've been referring to this whole time and mm -hmm. understanding that overlap in that in that structure rather than identities necessarily as the cause of the oppression so for example with race race is not the cause of racism you are not race in in and of itself actually and this is a thing in critical race theory uh mm -hmm. we talk about what uh, is called racecraft and um that is a book by barbara and fields and karen fields that we'll link below mm -hmm. um but the race when it comes to this race is, is a social construct and what this means is it's not that it's not real it's real and it's consequence is what we say it's it's constructed within this system that looks for justifications like it looks for a way to uh, justify their the oppression of certain groups of people so they create these uh these categories and so the categories themselves have no consistent biological root like this rate the concept of race has changed historically throughout history and it will continue to evolve um but the whole point is that understanding the, these identities as a direct result from this social structure helps us move on from solely the individual with intersecting identities while that is an important part we do want to focus on that matrix of domination that is what is causing that oppression within according to your intersecting identities so it's a bit confusing it can get confusing but we hope to develop this a bit more throughout this series to really help us understand what that means another way that we kind of build on our classic sociological concepts like the sociological imagination with this intersectional perspective um could be through a concept like marx's class consciousness right um so class consciousness isn't just the idea that oppressive systems are going to create a shared consciousness but that consciousness itself is the tool to then dismantle those oppressive power structures right mm -hmm. um and we can apply this uh beyond the idea of class and people do right so the first person I think of is Patricia Hill Collins black feminist thought right um and we can use this idea of different social consciousnesses and apply it across social categories to take on these structures just as Marx envisioned at the class level right but building that up to an intersectional understanding of how we can come together right not just see the systems of oppression but understand some ways that we can what we can do after right what the what next what next now um, can be also be addressed by sociology.
in this last portion of this conversation, we want to discuss how we'll be applying both intersectionality and the sociological imagination to frame how we think about these social issues. So in episode one, we talked about what was really bothering us over the summer, what was pissing us off in politics, the social issues that were affecting us emotionally. And now we are going to shift into discussing what organizations are causing those social issues to happen. And so through the next three episodes, and right now we're kind of just going to give our abstract, our little <laughs> idea to entice you to come watch the next few episodes, but we'll be discussing how the NRA, the Christian right, and the Koch brothers are using their power to affect these social issues. And so this is the idea of the matrix of domination of all of these organizations working together, the structures that we feel based off of it and how it's affecting our life is kind of the mixture of the sociological imagination and the matrix of domination. As she mentioned, I will be focusing on the Christian right. And that's because, as I mentioned in the episode in episode one, uh, my main research interest is Christian nationalism and race. So most of my research focuses on these institutions of that are made up by evangelicals and uh, also Catholics, but really conservative Christians in the United States who are behind a lot of these initiatives and law, like the overturning of Roe v. Wade, for example, but they've also been behind opposing critical race theory in classrooms and opposing the Black Lives Matter movement back through, well, they've done it before, but especially in the, in 2020. What you will notice as I go through that episode is, and through that review is that Christian, the Christian right has had this, these sort of peaks, these reactions across history when it comes to social progress. So, and social change. So when social change happens, they respond. And so that's kind of like the pattern that we've seen. So first they oppose during the civil rights era, they, there was a lot of conflict because of slavery, specifically in the South, but also in the North. Um, so there was the issue of slavery. There was the issue of segregation. Uh, there was the issue of integration and there was a lot of bypassing of integration laws with Brown versus board of education. Lots of Christian, uh, churches ended up creating private schools that they then labeled or registered as churches so that the federal laws, integration laws, wouldn't apply to them because it's a religious institution. So you can't really force them to comply with federal law. So it's a lot of sneaky things that were done throughout the years, uh, but very deliberately in order to, to uphold this myth, this idea of a Christian nation that once was and wasn't anymore because of, well, the civil rights movement and different developments over the years. So um, I will be focusing on things like the moral majority, which was in the 1980s. And this was uh, behind uh, Ronald Reagan getting elected and Richard Nixon, even George W. Bush. So all of these things um, are connected throughout history. And we see it up to the election of Donald Trump and all the organizations that were involved. Again, the focus of these organizations has been to respond whenever there is social change and when they feel that their power is slipping away 
and that society is shifting in a different direction that they want to, they will put money into candidates, research groups, uh, universities even. Many of them have created universities like Liberty University. Basically, what we want to do in the next episode is focus on these structures and what is underlying these issues that we're seeing and contributing to these decisions like the overturning of Roe v. Wade and anti-CRT legislation, uh, the Don't Say Gay uh, Act now because it was a bill, but now it's a law. I'm going to be looking at similar things as Marina, um, essentially these like culture wars, right? <laughs> but, um, mm -hmm. From the perspective of the role that the Koch family plays. Um, the Koch family, K-O-C-H, if you haven't heard of them, um, mm -hmm. they fund a large part of our current right-wing efforts. They're pretty hardcore libertarians, um, specifically the Koch brothers who run their companies now, meaning that they believe in essentially free market ideology on steroids. So absolutely no government inter intervention. They believe that that is the worst thing that could happen um, to a business. And as I go through this, I uncovered, I definitely uncovered some interesting overlaps, right? So mm -hmm. thinking of the matrix of domination, for example, um, when Charles Koch inherited the co family company, one of the first people he added to restructure the company was an evangelical leader. So I see these immediate ties with Marina's work here. Um, there's some other things we look at, like um, how they work behind the scenes to take advantage of anger on the ground, talking directly to what this episode is about, right? Um, by astroturfing, we saw that in the Tea Party, where the Koch brothers took advantage of essentially white middle-class anger um, and a lot helped direct that anger towards Democrats, Obama, whoever you want to say they directed it towards, but really shift their ideology towards a hyper-individualistic perspective, right, that relies on free markets and is very much anti-government regulation. Another thing that's really interesting is we can look at how they have their hands in the uh, college campus free speech debate. So similar, again, mm -hmm. to the evangelicals where they're funding almost every portion of this organizational funnel. Um, so they're not only funding the speakers like your Ben Shapiro's right and your Milo's um they're funding the the small the groups of students on campuses your small Republican organizations and they're also funding the lawyers right that will represent people who were kicked off of college campuses to claim that their free speech their right to free speech has been violated so you can see this almost like wraparound service right of of political libertarianism um and again how it connects to other social issues through not only the right but the NRA as well as Hallie will mention here in a second. Mm -hmm. Yeah so the NRA is a really interesting organization because a lot of people in defense of the NRA will be like well in the past they have supported gun control but um, when you look at the history of the NRA they supported gun control that would take the power away from black people and so a lot of times people don't realize that like when they supported gun control as a way to say that the NRA isn't that bad, it was to take away power from people of color. And this all came together. I'm going to kind of tie the story of the NRA because there was a really interesting building and breaking of tension in uh, about like 50 years ago where the organization had to decide whether it wanted to go the way of like oh, do we want to talk about like environmentalism and hunting or do we want to start becoming a political force? 
And there was basically a coup of leadership that came in and took away basically the old boys of the NRA and made sure that they became a political powerhouse. And so this entire thread of their narrative is very interesting to see of how they wanted to take control and where the control they wanted to take came from. So ironically, like the, they, because of the Black Panthers use of guns and police patrolling, they, the NRA took away the right to own guns basically in California. And so this scared rural white conservatives that their guns are being taken away but ironically they they were never coming for your guns those weren't <laughs> your guns that they wanted to take but that's what they think and so as you look through the history of the nra you'll realize that they never want to take your guns like if you were a white person and you own guns they never wanted to come for you they were coming for black people that own guns and so it's a very ironic idea that they're their movement to take guns away from black people is what now emboldens white conservatives to be so um, in love with the idea of like hoarding guns and how they view guns in culture today. And also is very much tied into them becoming a huge lobbying mechanism. They get a lot of money from the Koch brothers. There's this whole idea of like Christian individualism and owning guns and it all kind of comes to fruition with this idea of money in politics and and citizens united and the idea that you know they can spend as much money as possible as long as it's kind of like from other organizations but i'll get into that in that episode but yeah the history of the nra is very interesting and it i was first going to focus on mass shootings but it quickly became through a lens of race and how the nra has upheld white supremacy so that's what i'll be looking at that sounds amazing. And I think, <laughs> I think that perfectly just picture, it's a visual representation of what we want to do with this chapter. Please definitely tune in uh, for mm -hmm. those next three episodes, uh, which will be split into three parts. And uh, so this is pretty much it for this episode. Um, I think that I'll allow some space for anything else that y'all want to add. <laughs> Yeah, I'll just say I'm really, really excited for the little mini series. I think it's going to be taking a very unique perspective of social issues and social organizations. And it almost feels like, like we're uncovering things. It feels like journalism. It feels like yes. we're searching for things. <laughs> and it like, it made me really excited to do the research. And so, I mean, I hope you guys are as excited to listen because I think you're really going to learn things and things are going to be uncovered that you never even thought about before. So make sure you tune in for that because I'm really excited for it. I'll speak as a member of the audience because I still feel like that a little bit right now. I cannot <laughs> wait to hear you two's episodes and mine. Mine will be good too, but I cannot wait to hear <laughs> what you two come up with. So I'm very excited as well. Awesome. Well, thanks yeah. everyone for listening in and we hope you'll join us in the next three episodes. Um, and yeah, We'd also so like to thank the see y'all later. <laughs> Bye. Bye. For the generous support of this podcast.